Okay, great. We are now going to shift gears from the blogosphere to uh, space. So let me welcome our next guest. Let me get him on the air. Bear with me one second. Good morning, John. Good morning. Well, I am welcoming this morning John McBride, who is a former astronaut and has actually just a, a fascinating uh, past, as well as uh, is doing some very, very interesting things. Now, uh, you guys are right in the middle of a mission. How did the launch go last week? I didn't get to see it live. Oh, it was spectacular as normal. Uh, uh, the shuttle took off right on time, which is a good thing. We we like to plan things and launch them on schedule, and this one went right on schedule. And I think the mission has been very challenging but very successful, and we're Looking forward to recovering them Friday morning here at the Kennedy Space Center, assuming the weather doesn't preclude that. What time are they supposed to uh, get back? I believe it's 11.41 East Coast time Friday morning. So that in its own right is uh, really something that we can, you know, before we even take off, predict within a minute or so when we're going to land. So it really is rocket science. (laughs) <laughs> well, and the, and as it should be, I, I really enjoyed last night. I was watching uh, the ABC uh, Nightly News and, and was watching some of the footage of uh, what the guys were doing on the Hubble telescope. So just absolutely fascinating. Do you ever get tired of, of watching the liftoffs? Uh, no, I've seen probably we've launched the shuttles, I believe, 126 times now, and I've maybe I've probably firsthand have seen half of them and the rest of them on TV, but I never get tired of watching that uh, first couple of minutes as that thing lifts off and particularly down here at the Kennedy Space Center shakes the whole ground and what a light show and what a sound show as it lifts off and accelerates from a standstill to 25 times the speed of sound in only eight and a half minutes so you never get tired of something like that. Wow, wow. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I've lived in Florida now for 10 years and, and haven't had the pleasure of, of coming over for a live launch but uh, plan on doing that. Uh, you know, here very soon. But it's interesting. My my neighborhood. We live, uh, of course, on the other side, on the other coast of Florida, uh, in Tampa. And every time the shuttle launches, uh, everybody runs out on the docks. We live in uh, a marina community, and everybody stands there, hoping that you know it will be at just the right angle so that we can see it. And uh, not this one, but the last one. Uh, you know, we all were able to stand out there and see it. And and the kids who had been over to Kennedy Space Center as a part of a school tour or something, uh, just had the greatest stories to tell. Um, now, I want to just kind of go back to a little bit of your history, John. Um, your naval service began in 1965 with flight training in Pensacola, as I understand it. Is that correct? That is correct, and that's quite a few years ago, uh, right out of West Virginia University and into the U.S. Navy, and kind of lived out a, a lifelong dream of mine to be a flyer and Eventually, end up down here at NASA and get to fly spacecraft. So, and, and was, what, was a storied what fueled, career. What fueled that dream? Uh, you know, that that was very very early on. Uh, in fact, I don't think the space program was was even really fully, uh, you know, fully formed at that time. Uh, you know, when when you were a, a small child. So, what what got you? What sparked you? Well, you know, I grew up with Buck Rogers and. Space, or, you know, Buck Rogers, I guess, uh-huh. and Flash Gordon, and those kind of guys. And you're right, I did have not, I did not have astronauts, live astronauts, to look at until I was in high school when the Russians and the Americans picked their cosmonauts and astronauts. We picked our Mercury Seven and 
Of course, Yuri Gagarin was the first to fly, but, when it, but even two or three years earlier when the Russians launched Sputnik and we followed with our Explorer series. and right. It not only grabbed Sputnik my attention, baby. but I think every young person in America was captivated by the fact that we were launching rockets into space and right. eventually we're going to launch men into space. So it got me at an early age, and I never lost track of it. Interesting, because my mother always called me her little Sputnik baby because I was born in October of 1957, which is uh, when Sputnik went into space. So uh, I had that as part of my legacy. So when when you decided that you wanted to be a pilot, I mean, clearly you uh, you had people that you could look up to who had been aviators. And and what was it, uh, you know, was it when you were in in flight school that that you decided that you wanted to go on and and be an astronaut? Well, it it kind of, I guess you'd say, came to to uh, kind of was a rising moment for me because I go back a little earlier. I came from West Virginia, as I mentioned, and Chuck Yeager was a an idol of mine in my early years. So, and and of course, when I got into the Navy and saw that uh, half of the Mercury guys and a lot of the Germany guys came from the United States Navy, they were naval pilots. So, I kind of tracked my career and looked by, or looked back at what they had done. And, and kind of followed the career path that most of them had led, including test pilot school and postgraduate school and all those types of things, and in hopes that one of the one of the days in the future I would be would have the opportunity to apply for and be selected for. At that time, we didn't know what the shuttle program was even going to be in existence. So, just hoping for the future, and looking for the future, and planning for the future. And voila, as they say in France, I got to live out that dream. <laughs> So, as I understand it, it was uh, early 1978 when you were selected as an astronaut candidate, and uh, that your your assignments, of course, have included being the lead chase pilot for the maiden voyage of Columbia. So, uh, when when you when you got that opportunity, um, as you said, it, it really was the fulfillment of a dream. So, when when was that launch? Well, when was the launch or the class of the? Um, the the launch of of the Challenger, the initial launch. Uh, the initial launch of Challenger came. Well, the first uh, flight was on Columbia. The uh, uh-huh. first oh, flight okay. of Columbia was launched and landed in April of 1981. Uh, John Young and Bob Crippen were the first two to to fly to Columbia, and it was a very historic day, of course, because nobody in the history of mankind, as we know it, had ever launched a spacecraft and flown it around and brought it back and landed it like an airplane, because every right. flight before had either splash down or splat down, I call them, a Russian right. program. So this is a whole new whole new ball game. We flew the first five flights on the Columbia, the first four of which only had two people on board. Flight number five, we started adding crew members, went to a crew of four, and then flight number seven, which carried Sally Ride, who I got to flew with, fly with a little bit later, took our first crew of five. So we are kind of building the momentum, so to speak, in those early days. Wow. So, um, when did you retire from uh, from your role as an astronaut? Uh, technically, I guess you could say in uh, 1989. Uh, I was I got to fly the Challenger myself in 1984 with the first crew of seven, and the, which included the first crew to have two women on board. Uh, one of which was Sally Ride, our first American woman to fly, but this was her second mission. The other woman was Kathy Sullivan, and she was the first American woman to go out go outside the spacecraft and do a, a spacewalk, we call it, or an EVA. Uh-huh. Uh, we also took the first Canadian, Mark Garneau, the first Australian, Paul Scully Power. So it was a very historic mission back in 1984. Wow. I was scheduled to turn around and fly again uh, in March of 1986. I was the commander of the flight that would have immediately followed the loss of our Challenger. And seven dear friends, four of which were my 
classmates back in that first class of shuttle astronauts that you noted in 1978. So uh, following the tragedy, we did not fly any space missions for three years. President Reagan asked me to come up to Washington and be the uh, assistant administrator for him and charge of congressional relations for NASA. So that's uh, after three years there, I retired and uh, went back to my home state of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so what brought you back to Kennedy Space Center? Uh, for the last eight or nine years, I've been participating in a program here called the Astronaut Encounter Program, where we have a retired astronaut here every day of the year, except for Christmas when we're closed, and develop a very close kinship and relationship with all the folks here at the Kennedy Space Center. Of course, it's our, uh, you know, where we launch and recover all of the astronauts since we started flying them back in 1961. So it has a very special affinity for all of us who've had that opportunity, and after, I guess, seven or eight years, uh, they were looking for somebody to spend some time with them here in the next year or two, kind of doing strategic development for the visitor center. And they asked me if I would come on board for the next couple of years and help, help them do that, plan for the future, so to speak. So it's with great joy that came back aboard full-time here at the Space Center in February, looking forward to a couple more years. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today was the topic of leadership. And and clearly, when you are are sitting at the controls uh, of, of something as important uh, to not only history but but to our future as the shuttle, uh, leadership is an absolutely essential part of being an astronaut. So it's not just the technical knowledge and and the scientific understanding of what's going on. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, John? I think, uh, of course, uh, if you're going to fly the shuttle or fly as commander of the shuttle, you have to have exhibited a few traits of leadership in your previous career. And I, I think I gained a lot of that wherewithal or insight from my experience in the Navy. Uh, even though we're called naval aviators, our primary job while we're serving in the Navy, and I was there for almost 14 years, is to be a division officer and a, a leader. Uh, our primary job is to lead uh men and women in the Navy, and our secondary job is to fly airplanes. So it really was a educational experience for me, not only aviation-wise, but also in how to live and work with people of all sizes and shapes and all backgrounds and and uh, ideas and methodologies. So I think the Navy training was very instrumental in, in developing uh, leadership characteristics. Um, I was fortunate, even as a youngster back before I even got into the Navy, to have worked summer times as a superintendent and a, and a construction foreman and bridge building. So I think all that stuff, when you stack it on top of, of each other, kind of gave me whatever skills I needed to, to learn and develop to, if you want to call it, be a leader. Uh, I love working with people. Uh, there's three or four things. and You know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I've been working now for more than 50 years. I started working as a youngster in the bowling alleys, resetting pens and delivering newspapers and stocking groceries, and I never have stopped, hardly. And I think there's three or four things I've learned along the way that uh, and maybe some people will stick these in their hip pockets and use them in, in their careers or their futures. And I guess the, the thing I like to talk about most is being a professional. To be a leader, you've got to be a professional. I don't think you have to be a doctor or a lawyer to be a professional. I think you can approach any aspect of your job or your assignment with the attitude that I want to be a professional in this uh, opportunity that somebody's given me. So and being a professional is doing your best at 
everything you possibly can from the time you get to work or the, from the time until you leave. So just uh, work hard. You know the same old things that mom and dad told you when you were a child. And I think your <laughs> right. your attitude's a very important thing too. Uh, approach your job with uh, enthusiasm and and try to make a, a good day out of every day that you go to work. I think. If you look around your uh, place of work and you've got 15 of you and 14 people are happy and you're not, you ought to take a look, a look retrospectively and say, maybe there's something I can do to change the situation to make me feel better at what I'm doing. I think a key word, you know, we talk about leadership and all the mm-hmm. things I've gotten to do in my life, but I could not have done any of them without teamwork. Uh, right. I, get, I get to go on TVs and talk to you on the radio and email and all those types of things, but for every astronaut that goes into space, there are probably one or two thousand people on the ground that are backing them up in one fashion or another. So, none of us could go uh, climb on top of this space shuttle and be launched into space and do the intricate things that this Hubble crew just finished doing without all the thousands of people that back us up and train us and build these spacecraft and these tools and these satellites. So, teamwork is uh, in, an integral part of every leader, I think. If you think you can do it all yourself, you probably won't make it very far. And I guess the last thing that really I focus on, I think everybody should, no matter what they're doing, where they're doing it, is to be honest. Uh, approach everything you do with the highest, uh, utmost integrity. Uh, we we learned that here at NASA. You can't try to fool people with your job because it ends up killing people. So it's a very serious situation that you be honest not only with yourself but with everybody you're working with. And sometimes it hurts to tell it like it is, but that's about the only way you can do it. Absolutely. Now, John, did you have anyone or perhaps multiple people over the years who have been a model for you and a mentor uh, on the leadership side? I think I go go back to my childhood, uh, starting with my grandfather, who was a Methodist minister. We kind of grew up in a little closed-knit society back there in West Virginia. We were small towns, and all the families all lived and grew up together. And I was very fortunate to have grown up in a small town where Everybody knew everybody, and all the families still lived in the same area. My grandfather preached on Sunday at the church, and my father was a very strong role model, so was my older older brother. So it goes right back to, the, I think, the close-knit family community relationships that I had in a little town called Beckley back in West Virginia. And my high school principal and band director and football coach and basketball coach came to work there and lived their whole lives, and and worked and taught us, and that's the kind of wonderful opportunity I had as a child. And I think a lot of the things that I've gotten to do in my life go straight back to Beckley, West Virginia, and the, and the uh, learning experience I had there in my early days. Have you had the opportunity to be a mentor to others? I would think so. You know, if I've had 30 years of uh, experience in this space business, and one of the most rewarding times of all is when I hear from somebody that I did touch over the last 30 years, and education is a hot button of mine. I you know, spend a lot of time in just about every school I can get to when I have the time to do it, encouraging the youngsters to perhaps follow in my footsteps, and I've, <laughs> the footsteps that I followed when I was a youngster. Uh, and one of the most rewarding periods, and it happens, you know, Maybe every year, once or twice, I'll get a letter from somebody that I touched over the last 30 years and maybe turned their life in a different direction, and that's a a most rewarding experience. So I do get feedback, and it's very rewarding. 
Well, John, I would think that the work that you're doing now at Kennedy Space Center, I mean, you're you're touching kids all the time. And I, I know that when I first met you over at Kennedy Space Center, you, you talked to me about uh, giving kids the insights of, of the things that really are important, even in grade school, um, you know, if, if they do aspire to uh, a career as an astronaut. But one of the other things that struck me, um, was how, and you just alluded to it when you talked about the teamwork issue of, of how very many people there are on the ground that, that make a mission successful. And even behind the scenes at uh, the Kennedy Space Center, um, you, you really have a little village there of, of between the folks at Delaware North who actually have the contract to run the visitor center all the way through to the NASA personnel, and, and I, I would imagine that there are other support people um, you know, there there must be tens of thousands of different kinds of, of jobs within the NASA community uh, to make everything work, right down to, you know, chefs and, you know, people who take care of the grounds. And, uh, you know, it really is amazing to me. You're right. It's a, it's a total teamwork. And if the, the folks who are maintaining the property or cooking the meals don't do their job, then it, it affects everybody. From the, it's, a, it's a kind of a pyramid thing of, one or two people at the bottom of the pyramid don't perform perfectly. The whole thing can come tumbling down, and it really is evident here at NASA. Well, and, and especially so we, we have when to work you, and live as a very closely knit family, just like right. And and not just when you're having uh, or where you're in the midst of a mission, but I know when I was there uh, around spring break, you guys were having absolutely record crowds at at the visitor center, and that that can stress. Uh, you know, the infrastructure as well. So how are the crowds now? I know that the travel industry is experiencing pretty significant declines. Uh, how is your, your traffic at the Space Center now? I think our traffic at the Space Center is at or maybe even slightly above last year, and that's an amazing thing. because uh, A lot of the travel industry around the country in Florida are suffering a bit, but I think if you take a look at what we do here at the Kennedy Space Center, it's something that stays interesting to people no matter what the environment, the economic environment is. And I guess one of the things is that if people downsize from a larger vacation, they may want to go see the Kennedy Space Center. So maybe we're seeing some of that. But like you say, we're having record crowds. It's, you know, the things we do and the excitement we generate and the inspiration that comes out of this place really is not as affected by economics as a lot of other parts of our industry or our Mm -hmm. sectors here. So we really are pleased about the turnout this year, and I think that everybody comes and sees the Space Center here at Kennedy can really look with pride at uh, what America has done and what we're planning to do in the future. So it's really one of those icons of American history and landmarks and all those types of things that people will continue to come to no matter what uh, the economic situation may be. Right, and as I understand it, you you actually touch uh, not only a lot of American children, but you touch children and, and individuals from all over the world who come to the Kennedy Space Center. Well, that's that's true. We now have, by the way, uh, I think 37 nations who've launched people into space, either from here at Kennedy or over at Baikonur in the uh-huh. Russian complex, but also China. So there's a lot more people involved in space than just Americans or Russians these days. I took the first Canadian and the first Australian, as I mentioned, and uh, we've taken polls around here at the Space Center Visitors Complex, and uh, almost, well, right around 40% of our visitors that come here are from other nations. So we are mm-hmm. having a tremendous effect on not only our American citizens, but people who come to America. And <laughs> believe it or not, the, we get a huge percentage of the people who come to Orlando who want to come and see the Space Center. Right. Uh, right. Of course, well, we've got it, a, large, a lot so of large great. attractions over there, but they still are drawn to 
our space center because a lot of folks from other nations around this world, when they look to America, look at our achievements and our accomplishments in space over the last 50 years, and they certainly want to visit our space center as much as uh, most Americans want to. Absolutely, and and you know most people uh, may not know, particularly if they aren't familiar with with geography of Florida, is that it is less than 45 minutes. Uh, you know, even from the Disney side of Orlando, which right. is uh, on the Kissimmee side, We're about 35 minutes from the Orlando airport. So right, it's right. almost as easy to come to our place as it is to go to the other ones. Definitely. Now, John, tell me a little bit about the astronaut encounter program. So, if if I uh, was was to bring my my family over to Kennedy Space Center, how how would I interact with um, the astronaut who is there that day? Well, that's what's one of my uh, challenges when they brought me on board was to increase our exposure to the folks who come and visit the Kennedy Space Center because. Believe it or not, a lot of folks think that we launch and recover and do all of our training right here at the visitors complex. So they feel very disappointed if they go away and not even get to see an astronaut. So we've right. uh, starting in a couple of weeks. We're going to double our uh, go from one astronaut on full time duty year to two. Uh-huh. So essentially, we hope to double our uh, exposure to the people who come and visit the space center, give them an opportunity to come and listen. We do. We're going to start doing four uh, shows in our theater called the Astronaut Encounter Theater, where our visiting astronauts will recount their experiences in space for 10 or 15 minutes, and then answer questions from the audience for 10 or 15 minutes, uh, three or four times a day. And we're also adding an opportunity to come and visit personally with the astronauts in our uh, gift shop and uh, get signatures on whatever you want to bring with you or obtain from the Kennedy Space Center and have just have a personal one-on-one relationship or interfacing with the a guest astronaut. So there's a lot of things we're trying to do to, I think, before we started this effort to increase the exposure, we were maybe 10% of the people came through the gate got to actually talk to or visit with or meet an astronaut. Now we're, we're hoping to get this up to 30 or 40% minimum over the next three or four months and really make it uh, the experience here at Kennedy Space Center more rewarding when you walk out the gate and say, I really got to talk to somebody who was up there, and that's our ultimate goal. Well, that that is really great, and we are so looking forward to it. Uh, We had had a a trip arranged. We were going to come the first weekend of May uh, to celebrate my son Sergey's birthday, and he broke his leg playing football Tuesday before that. So uh, we're hoping that next week he'll get a a half cast instead of the big full cast he's got right now, so we will reschedule uh, our astronaut encounter. Why don't you try to reschedule it for the 13th of June, our next space shuttle flight, and I'll be happy to host you over here. Oh, that would be wonderful. I am going to write that down right now. Uh, you know, as you know, I think I told you we had adopted our son from Russia, so it, it is particularly poignant, uh, you know, to have so much cooperation now between, uh, you know, the various space programs and uh, for him to see a little bit of his heritage from both sides uh, as, yes, as a, an adopted American and, and as a Russian by birth. Well, I, I can almost guarantee you, well, of course, there are people who won't agree, but almost to the man and woman who've flown in space, I think over 300 of them now in the last 48 years from all these nations. Uh, maybe there's one or two dissenters, but I think uh, 99.9% of us really are happy that we're all living and working together in space and that we've opened the doors to peaceful and cooperative exploration up there in space. And uh, We've been working toward this goal for 20 years. As a matter of fact, the astronauts and cosmonauts started meeting annually back in 1985. And if you think back that far, you realize that 
our particular governments weren't all that friendly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but we we kind of maintained a relationship even during the Cold War, since the back in the early days of uh, Mercury and Gemini and the Russian series. So we're happy we're living and working together. And we, as I've told people for a long time, we wish that some of the cooperation we found up there could be beamed back to Earth. <laughs> all these respective countries would be a great thing. Well, John, it sounds like there's a book in there somewhere. Uh, I was just talking to Dan Bricklin, who uh, back uh, in in uh, the mid-'80s, I was doing my first software development project and used a tool that he created called Dan Bricklin Demo, and we were talking about all the different technologies that he has seen you know, over the years. He was one of the co-creators of the VisiCalc uh, product, and uh, uh, just last year he uh, took his blogs, which he had been writing since uh, the late, nine, uh, I guess, 1999, and he turned that into a book. And, and it sounds like you just have some amazing experiences that uh, I, for one, would certainly love to read some of the details of, of what you have been through and, and look forward to you know, coming over to the Space Center and, and hearing it, you know, firsthand in the astronaut encounter uh, program. So what do you what do you tell kids about leadership, John? And and what do you want to leave with folks in, in the last few minutes that we have here uh, of, of how to focus uh, so that they can leave a legacy and, and much more than, than just, uh, you know, going to work every day and, and bringing home a paycheck? Well, uh, first of all, I got to listen to the last five or ten minutes of you and Dan and I've great admirer of him myself, and my son certainly an advocate follower of him. Uh, there is a book inside of me somewhere. I've sketched it out, and maybe one of these days I'll have enough time to sit down and get it done. Uh, as far as for the youngsters I think, and leadership and all those things, uh, you can't be a leader. You can't do much of anything, I don't think, unless you uh, prioritize things. And your number one priority, if you're in elementary school in particular right now, is to Get your education. There's no nothing more important in your life, believe it or not, no matter what your friends are telling you. There's nothing more important in your life than your education. So don't squander it. Don't waste it. Uh, and the best way to do that is to do your homework and listen to your teachers and your parents who have your best interest at heart. I'll guarantee you they're the ones that care. And it may so- sound sometime like they're trying to punish punish you, but I think if you'll look at it, uh, particularly one of these days, when you look backwards, you'll say, I'm glad that they did that for me. I'm glad that they asked me to do this homework and learn and fill my brain with a lot of knowledge because now I can do something with my life. And the last thing you want to do is to squander this opportunity to get as much knowledge as you possibly can during these early years because when you get to be 18, 19, 20, you can't say, gosh, I sure messed up. I wish I could go back and try it all again. It's kind of late then. So uh, we're telling you now that the most important thing to do is to stay in school, study, work hard. School can be fun. Uh, it's not going to be fun if you don't prepare yourself and if you're not going to school ready to go to school every day. So the most important thing to do is to make school a fun opportunity by doing that homework and getting into class. That's the number one reason you're there. And if you're not doing that, that's probably why you're not having fun and not enjoying it because you're not doing what people are expecting you to do. So. Don't waste it. And you can't just stop at high school if you want to come down and work for us. You've got to go into college. And, of course, you can't go into college unless you do well in the first 12 years. So you're in a building block. You're in the formative stages of the rest of your life. So just don't mess it up if you want to lead anything. And you don't necessarily have to come down and work for us or fly a spacecraft to be a leader. But you've got to really work pretty hard for the first 16 or 18 years of your life and 
really aim uh, aim 10 or 20 years down the road. And, <laughs> and I know it's hard to do because I was a teenager myself, believe it or not. And I know there are a lot of uh, competing forces out there, particularly these days. And one of them is drugs. And if I ever say anything to anybody and kind of finish with that is that don't ever allow anybody to get you involved in that stuff because it'll not only mess up your life, it could kill you. And I just saw it last night, read it this morning in the newspaper here on the Orlando area where you and I live, and that we're losing people by the tens every day, not only right. to use use of drugs, but selling drugs and getting involved in all these, you know, these drug killings. So that's a horrible way to live your life. It's a short-lived life. Most of them die young and die tragically. So if you don't do that, I guess is the best thing. Don't get involved with it. Stay away from it. If you're going to be a leader and fly spacecraft or lead anything, you can't get involved in that kind of a lifestyle because it will kill you. Right. And a real leader, by the way, would not do it themselves, but they would carry it one step further by convincing their friends it's a stupid thing to do. Instead of allowing them to drag you into it, you keep them out of it. That's what a real friend and a real leader would do. Well, John, I am putting the 13th of June on uh, my calendar and setting our sights on uh, celebrating Sergey's birthday in a belated fashion uh, with uh, the astronaut encounter. And thank you so much for taking the time this morning, and I look forward to working with you further on uh, exploring the different educational opportunities to expose what you guys are doing there at Kennedy Space Center to the schools in Florida. Thank you, Chickie. I've enjoyed being with you this morning. Look forward to seeing you on the 13th of June. And okay. everybody else listening, come on down. If you've never seen a space shuttle launch, you need to witness one of those in your life. Okay. Well, terrific. Thank you so much, John. Have a great day. Thank you. You have a good day, too. Okay. Bye.